0: Hi, everybody. Before we get started with today's episode, I wanted to remind you about an upcoming event that Josh and I are hosting on Saturday, May 9th. It's our 2020 Masterclass, a full-day live online event featuring incredible guest speakers, opportunities to interact with an incredible like-minded community, and more. You do not want to miss this. Our theme this year is resilience, which we chose back in the fall. However, now this topic feels even more urgent and important. Head over to culinarynutrition.com forward slash 2020 masterclass to learn more and get your tickets. Again, that URL is culinarynutrition.com forward slash 2020 masterclass. You do not want to miss this day. And again, even if you can't join live, there is a recording. We can't wait to connect with you there. Now let's get to today's episode. Welcome to the Today is the Day podcast, where we take a deep dive into popular health topics and empower you to make informed, evidence based decisions. We offer practical tools and strategies so you can easily integrate what you learn into your everyday habits. And today is the day we're going deep on dairy and whether the messages that have been drilled into us for decades, like milk builds strong bones, are even true. We'll look at if we actually do need dairy in the diet for optimal health.
1: We'll be covering is dairy healthy for us with a surprising twist to the answer? The surprising degenerative condition that is associated with high dairy intake? Who actually should and needs to be consuming dairy? The little known connection between dairy and gluten? And our favorite dairy alternatives.
0: Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm Megan Telpner, a nutritionist, two-time best-selling author, and founder of the Academy of Culinary Nutrition. Joining me as always is the man I will go out for coconut ice cream with any day of the week, Josh Gitalis.
1: You betcha, Megan. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, everyone. I'm a clinical nutritionist and functional medicine practitioner with a clinic in downtown Toronto. I'm also the founder of the Functional Nutrition Certification Program and an instructor with the Academy of Culinary Nutrition.
0: I'm really excited to get into this conversation about dairy. Of all the things we challenge people with to remove, dairy is often the toughest and usually has the most resistance. People have a strong attachment to two things, cheese and ice cream. And I get it. They are delicious. But before you start putting up the defenses, you may discover in this episode that you don't have to give either of those up and still move up the slope of health. Doo-doo-doo.
1: Exactly, Megan. As we always say, there is no one diet for everyone. And that also means that there is no single food or a food group, as the case may be, that everyone on the planet needs to remove from the diet.
0: Okay, Josh. So on that note, is dairy good or bad for us?
1: Yes, And no, it really depends, Megan.
0: Yeah, I knew you were gonna say that.
1: So let's dive into the yes first. It's good when we have a body that can process it in a healthy way. What kind of body might that be? Well, first let's talk about the gut. When we have a healthy gut and we don't have immune issues, we have a much lower propensity to react to certain foods in a negative way for our immune system to say, hey, we shouldn't be eating that, I wanna attack that. Now, when the gut isn't healthy, sometimes we can't process the food properly. And this doesn't just apply to dairy. It applies to many foods, but dairy happens to be one of the most reactive foods for whatever reason. Some of them we'll get into today.
0: Right, and so healthy gut and no immune issues. How do you know? Well, here's how you know. (laughs) You know, most people actually know pretty soon after consuming dairy if they react to it. Like you get... Like the gurgling in your belly. I, I I always likened it to swallowing a lava lamp where there's like I picture these like bubbles in my belly, like blah, 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 blah. that was my sound effect. And immune issues, we talk a lot about this in the autoimmune episode as well as in the inflammation episode. Is if you're if you get sick easily, if you're slow to recover, if you're dealing with an autoimmune condition, or if you do have inflammation in the body or chronic inflammation in the body. Those can all be signs of an imbalance in the gut and having some type of immune disruption.
1: So if you do have good gut integrity, you have a healthy immune system and you know that you are fine after consuming dairy, then go for it. There are definitely healthy ways to consume dairy and healthy forms of dairy that you can consume. And people have been consuming dairy for a very, very long time.
0: So the healthful forms of dairy are the ones that are minimally processed. So whole milk that has not been homogenized where the proteins get twisted up, that has not had the fat removed from it in this case of like skim milk or 1% milk. We are big fans of butter. I'm personally a big fan of ghee that's had the dairy proteins and the milk sugars removed from it. Aged cheeses often made from raw milk can also have a lot of health benefit and be minimally reactive for people.
1: And the reason why we... Recommend raw is because in the milk that has not been pasteurized, there are enzymes that actually help you to digest the milk that you're consuming or the cheese that you're consuming. We got into this big whole issue with pasteurization back in the day when we had Louis Pasteur on the planet saying that it's the germ that causes the illness. But he is known to have said on his deathbed that it's not the germ, it's the terrain but we got into heating up all these foods before it was too late, basically.
0: However, Josh and I would never advocate for drinking raw milk because it is highly illegal. That's sarcasm. <laughs> it is, raw milk is illegal in Canada. There are some states in the United States that it is legal to get raw milk, but do your own research and make your own decisions. The Weston A. Price Foundation could be a source of information if you are considering raw milk. Now on the other side, the challenge is that most people when they consume dairy are consuming the highly, highly processed dairy of the 1% 2% in skim milks, of processed yogurts that maybe may or may not have live active bacteria or fermentation benefits. Um, usually they're loaded with sugar. Processed ice creams, creams, half and half, highly processed butter made from, and all of this made from milk from cows that are in these feedlot type settings, being given hormones and other things to increase milk production, tons of antibiotics, all this kinds of stuff that you just don't want to be consuming.
1: There's a saying not just you are what you eat, but you are what what you eat eats. Right. So if you're consuming milk from unhappy cows, you're essentially consuming all of the bad stuff that they're eating. Not just
0: unhappy, unhealthy.
1: And Yeah, exactly. Unhappy <laughs> and unhealthy. I mean, those cows don't look too happy in those factory farms, but they're consuming a lot of grains with inflammatory fats versus the grass that they should have been consuming, that keeps them healthy, that prevents infection, that brings a lot of those good omega-3s and omega-6s into the milk as well.
0: So unprocessed dairy from quality sources does have some nutritional benefit, assuming your gut's intact and you can properly digest the proteins and the sugars in the milk. And some of those benefits include quality protein, fat, They do have calcium, which is important for strong bones, but not the only nutrient important for strong bones. And milk is not the only food you can get the calcium for strong bones. And milk also has naturally occurring vitamin D in it. The challenge we see in processed milk is that the fat's been removed and vitamin D is a fat-soluble vitamin. So we need the fat in order to even absorb it. So this processed dairy, fat-free skim milks then has synthetic vitamin D added back into it.
1: Right. When we see 2% or 1% milk, that's an indication or skim milk that they've taken away that fat content. That's what skim means. They've skimmed off all the fat. And along with that goes the nutrients. So when you look at processed foods, they've put some of those back in and they're much lower quality versions of it because the government said, hey, you know, the original food had these nutrients in it, and we don't want to fool people. So you got to put something back in and they end up being much lower quality.
0: So if you are in the minority of the population and it is a minority that can perfectly digest lactose and casein and all the other things found in milk, you want to ensure you're choosing organic from a reputable, clean source, and you're eating it in the most unprocessed way that you can access it. Now, Josh, what benefits some, however, does not benefit all.
1: That's correct. And I think it's important for us to kind of break down what the different mechanisms are by which people react to dairy. Because again, it gets put in one category, but there are different ways where it doesn't agree with people. And it is related to what is in the milk. So one of the things in milk and dairy is lactose. Lactose is a milk sugar. We have an enzyme in our body called lactase. Anything that ends with A-S-E, you're getting a little biochemistry lesson here, is an enzyme. And anything that ends in O-S-E, is a sugar. So lactose gets broken down by lactase. Now, 70% of the world's population lose the ability to digest and break down lactose after they're weaned so, from breastfeeding. And,
0: so basically after the age of two.
1: Correct. Well, it depends how long you're breastfed for.
0: Right. But on average, I think the the number is usually yeah. when, when a child doesn't need to rely on a mother's milk.
1: Exactly. So that's 70% of the world's population. So that's lactose intolerant. And the symptoms are quite clear. They're not very weird or abstract. When you consume lactose and you can't digest it, you get digestive upset, you get gas, you get bloating, you get smelly farts, you get diarrhea, you get all those nasty things that happen when you can't digest it.
0: So when when you're lactose intolerant and you take that date out for an ice cream...
1: Not a good idea. you, You know
0: the night will be ending early.
1: Oh, yeah. Now, the other mechanism by which people react to dairy is a reaction to the proteins in the dairy. And this is where things get a little bit more confusing and a little bit harder to pin down. So there's two specific proteins in dairy called casein and whey. And we can react to both of those. We can react to one of those. And the reactions that you get from those are not as obvious. So they can be intestinal. So you can have some of those issues that I was talking about, but they could also be extra intestinal. So outside of the intestinal lining or intestinal area. In other words, they can be in the muscles in the joints in your brain. They could be in the thyroid. They could be all over and cause all sorts of symptoms that are either immediate or even delayed. Skin issues are a really, really common one with dairy sensitivities.
0: Like teen acne.
1: Exactly. And we can even have immediate allergies or which are related to IgE reactions or delayed, which can be related to IgG. So as you can see, there's multiple reactions someone can have to the dairy and that's why we say if you do have any health issues to take it out and see if you notice any difference. I just
0: want to go back on the skin thing because uh, it's such an important one and often so obvious that someone might have like slight digestive apps. They're like, whatever, I can live with it if I can still have my cheese. But then they're complaining about cystic acne, chronic acne, dermatitis, eczema, psoriasis. And this can also be applicable on, on babies and kids when they start taking a bottle with a cow or even in some cases, a sheep and a goat-based dairy, which we should probably talk about a little bit. But when they get like eczema or red rosy cheeks, bedwetting in kids can also be a symptom of a dairy sensitivity or dairy allergy.
1: Another really big one with kids is otitis media, ear infections. Ear
0: infections.
1: And when we're young something called the eustachian tube is more horizontal than vertical. So it has trouble draining. And one thing that dairy can do is it can increase mucus formation in some kids and it clogs up that eustachian tube and then bacteria become stagnant and an infection ensues.
0: I never knew that mechanism. Yes. So glad I learned something today.
1: I'm so glad you joined me today on this (laughs) podcast, Megan. So... That is one of the first things I recommend when we're dealing with kids with chronic ear infections. Now, what's the typical process for these kids? Usually, it's antibiotics. It's more antibiotics, and then once that doesn't work anymore, it's tubes in the ears. What to help that ear drain, essentially.
0: Right. And the thing is, with dairy, is just get rid of it. And and a lot of people, <laughs> is it that easy? Are we done? <laughs> no, but like a, there's a big big question and big challenge, especially among babies being weaned that they wean off breast milk or formula and are given a bottle of cow's milk. And as soon as a child, so roughly from five or six months of age when they start eating actual food, they're not going to need necessarily a bottle of milk to get the nutrients they're getting. If they're eating a varied diet, they're going to be getting what they need from their food. And so especially after the age of one, let's say, there's absolutely no need to give a child a bottle of dairy-based milk. You can give them hemp milk, coconut milk. If you've started introducing nuts, you can give a nut milk or an oat milk. And the milk at that point is really just a comfort. You don't need to do it for a nutritional benefit. And so if you suspect your child has a lot of the symptoms we talked about, getting that milk out could be a really, though would be a transition and a transition for everyone with little ones is not easy, but it could be a more effective solution.
1: Right and if we did need milk
0: after mm-hmm. we were weaned
1: A lot of cultures would have died out a long time ago. That's true. not you can't have livestock everywhere in the world mammals you know with four legs and you can have camel milk, sheep milk, goat milk,
0: cow's milk of course. But that's also interesting because genetically based on your ancestry can affect your ability to digest milk into adulthood if your ancestors required milk for survival.
1: For sure. Now, people who can actually digest lactose after they're weaned are mutants. Really? Yes. This was a mutation in the genes, I I don't know, like 5,000 years ago or something. I have to check the facts on that one. But they had the mutation that allowed them to continue digesting lactose. So all of us who are lactose intolerant, actually we're not lactose intolerant, so we're the mutants. But the ones who are lactose intolerant are actually what's called the wild type or the the normal people on this right. planet. And actually, statistically speaking, 70%, as I mentioned earlier, cannot digest dairy. Now, on our Canada Food Guide until very recently, there was a whole food group devoted to dairy.
0: That's right. Yeah, we
1: live in a multicultural country. So what's going on there?
0: Lobbyists, Mo- <laughs> let's move along. We touched earlier on gut issues and how having things like leaky gut can predispose someone to sensitivities to dairy. And with both of us with our work, the Culinary Nutrition Expert Program is completely dairy and gluten-free. You basically require clients to eliminate gluten and dairy before you can work with them. Can you talk a little bit about that cross-reactivity? We do touch on this in the gluten episode, but now we're talking about dairy. And so I think it's important that we clarify this mysterious connection between the two.
1: Well, let's. Talk about reactivity and cross-reactivity. So what happens is when the gut integrity is compromised and we have what's called leaky gut or leaky gut syndrome or gut permeability, proteins that should have been broken down properly and were too big to get into the bloodstream can kind of leak in and get into the bloodstream. And our immune system is there to figure out what's Josh and what's foreign. And if it sees these proteins that are not Josh and not small enough to not be recognized as foreign, then it attacks them. And then we have an inflammatory response and wherever that protein ends up, it could end up looking like certain tissues, it attacks those tissues, or there could be a a war in the gut zone, like right where they're being consumed, and that causes an immune reaction. Now, there are other foods that have proteins that look very similar to dairy, and these typically occur in foods that contain gluten, like wheat, rye, barley, spelt, kamut. So we get what's called a cross-reactivity. The body is smart, but it's not that smart, and it looks to seek and destroy those proteins it has recognized in the past. And if it still occurs in other foods, we have this cross-reactivity and it reacts to those foods as well. So there's a very strong cross-reactivity between gluten and dairy. There's many other cross-reactivities out there, but this is one of the strongest ones.
0: This is why if you suspect a sensitivity to one, it's optimal to eliminate both to see if that addresses the root. And then you can try adding one back in or the other if you decide that you want those in your diet and it's important to you to have those in your diet. Or you might find that you can get away with having one or the other in small amounts very occasionally and not have a reaction, which is what my experience has been with dairy. If I have it every couple of weeks, a little bit, I have no problem. If I start having it every day, like if I have, like we'll buy a lactose-free raw milk three-year aged cheddar. If I eat that every single day, I'm gonna start to have uh, breakouts of eczema on my skin.
1: Interesting. Now, another mechanism, which I haven't covered yet, by which we can have a reaction to dairy is components in dairy called casomorphins. And these actually make contact with the opiate receptors in the brain. And we get comments like this from people where they say, oh, I'm addicted to dairy, or I love dairy so much, I can never give it up, or I can't even imagine life without it. And that's probably because some of the components in the dairy are actually making them feel great when they consume it. Mm -hmm. Now, We can also have what's called secondary lactose intolerance, where-
0: Is that like if you eat it and I react?
1: (laughs) Not quite. It's where the gut cells, the microvilli, that line your gut, get destroyed. This can happen with celiac disease. And we have the enzyme lactase being produced in those microvilli tips. So then we can actually digest lactose as well. And what's interesting with people like that is they can be lactose intolerant at some point, yet they can restore those microvilli and be able to tolerate dairy again.
0: We're gonna take a quick pause here so you can meet one of our powerhouse dynamic culinary nutrition experts, Melissa Ebele. Melissa is a 2016 grad who has made a name for herself with appearances in leading mainstream media, including Dr. Oz and the New York Times. Her business is booming. Here's Melissa to share more about what she's working on.
2: Hi, my name is Melissa Ebele. I'm also known as Chef Via Melissa. I'm a 2016 graduate from the Academy of Culinary Nutrition based out of New York City. Since graduation, I've had an amazing world of opportunities present itself to me once I had my knowledge from the program. For starters, I launched a personal chef and catering business where I focus on healthy in home group cooking classes, dinner parties, as well as healthy catered affairs, especially helping people that love to attend parties and might have a gluten sensitivity or a dairy sensitivity. And of course, for those that love clean, healthy eating. I've also been very fortunate that. I've been published many, many times in a lot of big media publications, as well as on TV and Dr. Oz a couple of times. I've been in the New York Times, the New York Post, Reader's Digest, and most times that I'm published, I talk about healthy recipes, healthy cooking tips, and nutrition tips, and of course, all things healthy food eating, living, and breathing the culinary nutrition lifestyle as a whole. Anyway, I love obviously applying the CNE lifestyle to myself as well as sharing my knowledge with close friends and family members and anybody that I basically come across. I highly encourage you to check out the program if you haven't already. It has certainly changed my life and I definitely know it can leave a positive impact on yours as well.
0: Melissa is an incredible example of how you can creatively apply the knowledge and skills learned in the Culinary Nutrition Expert program and bring it out into the world in a way that everyone can get behind. Learn more about Melissa's work in our show notes. Visit culinarynutrition.com forward slash podcast and choose this episode. We have links there to everything she offers. If you have a passion for healthy living and cooking and would love more formal training to help build up your confidence in nourishing your family. Family, or perhaps get out in the world and share it as Melissa has done please visit culinarynutrition.com forward slash program to learn more about our 14-week certification program. I host a live monthly information session about the program. If your interest is peaked or you just want to hang out for an hour save your seat at culinarynutrition.com forward slash info session. Now let's get back to today's conversation.
1: Now, one other aspect that we need to be careful with is people with dysbiosis, an imbalance of the good and bad bacteria. Because dairy has this sugar in it called lactose, this sugar can feed bacteria that may not be beneficial for that person at that time. They can ferment it. And that can become dangerous because it could create further dysbiosis and 70% of the immune system is in the gut. So we wanna make sure that that gut is healthy and has a good balance of the good and bad bacteria. So one of the things I do with clients and one of the reasons why I only see people who are off dairy is we have to get that lactose out while we're healing the gut and repairing that dysbiosis because otherwise we're bringing in this sugar that is constantly feeding the bad guys. And a lot of the time, people don't think of dairy as having sugar in it because it's a naturally occurring sugar of lactose.
0: So one of the things that I think is drilled into all of us is that you need milk for strong bones, that milk is the best source of calcium. So if we live in a country that has some of the highest dairy intake in Canada and the U.S., how can we also have the highest rates of hip fractures?
1: Interesting. Well, we find that actually countries where they have the lowest consumption of dairy have the lowest amount of hip fractures. How can that be? Well, when it comes to bone health, calcium isn't the only thing that's needed for strong bones. Yes, if we take a piece of bone and we analyze it, most of it is calcium. But if I take a piece of my shed out back and analyze what that is, most of it's going to be wood. Right. But there's nails that are needed there's measuring tapes that are needed to put that together. There's a little roof on it so it doesn't get destroyed by the weather and get moldy and rot away. There's glue that's used in certain spots. So in order to make bones, we actually need a variety of nutrients, not just calcium. We we also need magnesium. We need phosphorus we need strontium, we need boron, vitamin K, and another really important one is vitamin D.
0: Vitamin D is such a big and vital nutrient. And we know that basically everyone who lives in North America is low in vitamin D unless you are supplementing specifically through the winter. So we're blocking our vitamin D production, wearing sunblock all summer long, and then we're inside all winter long. And even if we are outside, the sun isn't high enough to actually produce that vitamin D. And that vitamin D is vital for our bone health. It's also vital for mood, cancer prevention. There's so many benefits and needs of vitamin D. So looking at just the single nutrient of calcium as the most important thing for bone health is what's resulting in chronically weak bones.
1: Right, and it's just another example too of how nature had it all figured out before we started messing with it, where if you're eating raw, unprocessed dairy, you're getting some vitamin D along with that calcium, which helps incorporate it into the bone. If you're consuming skim milk, you're getting the calcium or some calcium, but you're either getting no vitamin D or a synthetic vitamin D2, which doesn't get activated as well in the body, in the liver, and then the kidneys to actually do its work.
0: And so if we are ditching dairy and you're like, but where's the calcium? So some of the best alternate sources of calcium include collards. All greens have calcium, but collard greens and collards are really nice to slice up really thin and saute with a little bit of onion and garlic and sea salt and maybe an avocado or coconut oil to have as a side dish. You can also use collards as wraps. So take out the woody stem, give it a light steaming, and you can use it as a tortilla replacement or a wrap replacement in sandwiches or with burgers or however you want to use it in that way.
1: I love the culinary knowledge, Meg. I know well, how to apply that. A little
0: culinary nutrition. That's and, what this is all about.
1: And this is great because we have been ingrained with the idea that we have to get the calcium from our dairy. Yeah. And again, if you had to, people would have died out a long time ago, certain cultures.
0: Rhubarb is another really great source of calcium. And one of my most favorite ways to consume it is a strawberry rhubarb butter. So you basically can simmer together strawberries, rhubarb, applesauce, a little bit of honey. Well, you put the honey in at the end, puree that, and you can make a beautiful spread to put on, well, to eat by the spoonful, let's be honest, but to put on anything and also making a rhubarb crumble. So when rhubarb comes up in the spring, chop it up with whatever other fruit you have available Sprinkle over top some oats, some nuts and seeds, some coconut oil and bake that at 350 for 45 minutes. Mm -mm, Crumble.
1: Is it really that easy?
0: It, it, it really is. Yeah,
1: it's delicious too. And we
0: have links to all of these on culinarynutrition.com forward slash podcast when you choose this episode. Sardines are another one that are not a super popular food, I'd say, except maybe for Oscar the Grouch and Josh Gatalis. But they are a small fish so that there isn't that level of bioaccumulation, but eat it with the bones in. You can also have, if you buy a quality source of tin salmon, eating that with the bones in can be great sources of calcium him. Spinach is another one, whether you're eating it as a raw spinach salad or doing a light saute of it. Spinach is also a really wonderful green to throw into smoothies because it's very mild tasting. And sesame seeds are another really good source of calcium where you can grind those down and sprinkle them on all your salads, on pastas, anywhere like that. You can also get it already ground as tahini, which we use a lot in different salad dressings. So making a salad dressing with tahini, olive oil, lemon, a little bit of tamari, and maybe some minced garlic makes a really nice creamy salad dressing. You can spread tahini on anything like you would any other nut or seed butter. So those are some really nice ways to get in alternate sources of calcium-rich foods.
1: You mentioned grinding down the uh, sesame seeds. Do they need to be ground in order to be digested?
0: No, they don't. I mean, you do want to make sure you're chewing your food really well. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I'd say just put sesames on anything. I like grinding them down because it gives a bit of a a Parmesan, which I'm going to share another of my favorite Parmesan replacement options.
1: Megan, I just thought of another interesting thing about dairy.
0: What is that, Josh?
1: Why is cheese yellow when milk is white?
0: Oh, you love this story. And if anyone wants to search one of Josh's early embarrassing (laughs) YouTube videos, you can see him explain it.
1: Yes. So animals, like cows, will consume just the grass out there in the the pasture. And in that grass is beta-carotene. So beta-carotene has an orangey color to it. And some farmer or cheese maker discovered at some point that when you put a little bit more yellow in the cheese, people think it's more nutritious and will eat it and buy it. So we've gotten into this whole mess of putting yellow coloring in our cheese. When you see a yellow cheese, there is some sort of coloring in it to make it that color because milk is white. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's another thing that's been ingrained in our brain. I remember I used to have craft dinner back in the day. Yum, yum. And that was, that was
0: a sarcastic yum, yum, right, Josh?
1: No, not back in the day. (laughs) (laughs) And it was like yellow, like bright yellow, this cheese that came out of the packet that you poured into your pasta. And then I even remember them coming out with like the white version. And it was like this exotic, like- Seemed like it was healthier somehow. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's
0: so ingrained in us that when I do my vegan mac and cheese with like a cashew cream sauce, I put a little bit of turmeric in it to give it that yellow color.
1: Right, but if you get any good high quality cheeses, you'll know and notice- that, they're always white.
0: Most often. Yeah. So the biggest takeaway we want you guys to have from this episode is that it's not an all or nothing with dairy. We don't hate dairy. We're not anti-dairy. We're not telling you that everyone on the planet needs to avoid dairy. It's that there could be some people that will benefit from some at some points in their life. But ultimately, when dealing with a health challenge, you want to get out all those slivers, as we've talked about, all of those potential causes of the health challenge. And for a lot of us, given the the state of dairy in the diet, given the volume we're consuming, for many of us, getting it out. Could very well be part of that road to healing and part of the solution. It might be permanent, it might be temporary, but it's definitely worth trying. And the good news, might I say great news, is that there are delicious ways to replace dairy in the diet.
1: I love the raw cheeses that you make, the dairy free cheeses with cashews.
0: Yes, the fermented nuts. Oh, so nut cheeses. good. Yeah, they are good.
1: And they're, you know, I eliminated dairy for, I think, three years strict. Yeah. Uh, because it was giving me some skin issues. I can eat it now again, uh, which is nice. But... One of the things that kind of scratched that itch of wanting some cheese was the nut cheeses. Yeah, made out of uh, cashews.
0: Yeah, and you can do them uh, without nuts as well. Though, quite honestly, they are better with with cashews in my experience because doing it with sunflower seeds or hemp seeds, they do carry a stronger taste. You can do it with pine nuts, which some people say aren't nuts. I don't think they're nuts because they come off the ends of pine trees, but use your own discretion on that front. There's also an amazing, and I have a recipe for you for a cashew cheese. And we actually have a, also a link to a whole roundup of dairy-free cheese options. But one of my favorites is a Parmesan replacement. I have a video this shows you how to make this It will link to, but it's basically doing a quarter of a cup of hemp seeds, a quarter of a cup of nutritional yeast, and about half a teaspoon of sea salt. And you put all that in your spice grinder or coffee grinder and mix it up, store it in your fridge, sprinkle that on everything. It's a delicious omega-3 rich, non-dairy parm replacement that goes deliciously on salads and pastas, but also as a popcorn topper. So you definitely want to give that a go. Getting rid of butter. So if you're eliminating regular conventional butter, Josh, what what can we use instead?
1: Well, you could use ghee, which takes out the milk solids and the proteins, especially if you're making it yourself or getting a really good source and then you're left with the fat. That's a nice one.
0: We also have a guide for you on how to make your own ghee. Oh, wonderful. Check that out.
1: And then there's coconut oil is a nice one. Of course, you're going to get the taste of coconut oil. So you're going to only want to use it in certain, Dishes. There's lard and tallow, which are good animal sources of fat that don't have much of a strong taste. And another good one for uh, heat is avocado oil, which has a really nice liquid consistency, is liquid at room temperature, is quite versatile, and doesn't have a strong flavor at all.
0: I should also mention these are, we gave alternatives for higher heat cooking because butter is a stable, high heat cooking oil. But if you're looking for a spread, you can obviously try and make it yourself. But uh, we are big fans of a company here in Toronto called Cultured. So if you're local to Toronto, they make an amazing vegan butter spread that we, though we do eat ghee, uh, we almost prefer this one spread on our my homemade gluten-free bread.
1: And I was a bit hesitant at first when yeah. we ate it. I'm like, ah, this can't be that good. It's so And it delicious. was amazing.
0: So shout out to our friends at Cultured. We are not sponsored, by the way. Ice cream. So ice cream is a big one for people. I think cheese and ice cream are the biggest and the hardest to let go You can make amazing ice creams from home with coconut milk um, or cashew milk. You can also do a really simple coconut banana ice cream. So take your banana, take your coconut milk, a little bit of honey and any other fruit you want, blend that together and put it in the freezer. And this is a no ice cream maker ice cream. And when you want to eat it, just take it out maybe 10 minutes before so it softens just enough. But that in most cases, will satisfy that ice cream craving. If you really want to make it fancy, melt together some coconut oil, coconut butter, and cacao powder, and you will drizzle that over your ice cream for an instant crackle. The full recipe for that. Yeah, the full recipe for that is in the Undiet cookbook.
1: We like to call these nice creams.
0: Josh likes to call them nice (laughs) creams.
1: Another thing you can do also on the ice cream talk is if you have a high speed blender or I don't even know if you can do this in a food processor, but you just take frozen fruit, yeah, you can do it, and you process. just uh it takes a little bit of elbow grease, but you you know you put the muscle into it and you can get a really nice all fruit sorbet type thing
0: yes, and if you're and there's lots of dairy free ice cream options now in stores. I remember when I first went dairy free in nineteen ninety five was basically a watery rice milk option, but there are so many rich and delicious dairy-free ice creams. And most ice cream places now also have dairy-free options. So there's really no excuse on the ice cream front. And the last one, of course, is milk. Nut and seed milks are incredibly easy to make. One part nuts to four parts water. So if you're going to make, say, a quarter or a half cup of almonds and two cups of water, blend that together and put it through a cheesecloth or a nut milk bag, and you've just made your very own nut milk. And we have a guide for that as well. So there are so many simple homemade options and store-bought options to make that dairy replacement effortless.
1: So when in doubt, just take it out. You know, if you think you are reacting to dairy or have any doubts or have any health issues of any sort, just eliminate it for one month and see how you feel.
0: Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode. One of the things that helped me eliminate a lot of my favorite foods when I was dealing with my own health crisis was reminding myself that life without the suffering looked way shinier and brighter. Suddenly lacking ice cream or cheese wasn't that big a deal. If I had the confidence that I could wake up tomorrow and feel really good or know that I could make plans without worrying that something I ate was going to upset my system and I'd have to cancel the plans. So sometimes a little perspective goes a long way. To not be in pain, to not suffer is the most powerful and important thing for our quality of life. And if you can make delicious ice cream with coconut milk and feel better for doing it, it's worth it. And guys, there's lots more. Everything we do at the Academy of Culinary Nutrition is dairy-free. And if you want to take what you've learned in today's episode and go deeper, please head over to culinarynutrition.com forward slash podcast to choose this episode. We have loads of dairy-free living and eating inspiration there for you. And if you're feeling inspired, perhaps this is the year you join our tribe and become certified as a culinary nutrition expert. The Culinary Nutrition Expert runs only once a year, and we have a celebrated community of graduates in over 65 countries. Whether you're looking to further your knowledge and skills for personal application in your home kitchen, or to kickstart or further develop a career in the health field, our program might be just what you're looking for. Learn more at culinarynutrition.com forward slash program.
1: Knowledge is important, but applying it is where the power is. As I always say, the best way to get started is to get started. Take what you've learned and start applying it in your life. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and share it with your friends. We look forward to connecting with you again next time.
0: Have a great day.